this is a real pleasure to talk about this. And uh, uh, what I'm going to be doing is, is sharing some concepts with you that I hope will challenge some discussions that we might have at the end of my talk about the application of what I have uh, listed here, worksite wellness and missions and community engagement, which we'll be talking about all three of those things. Now, why have we chosen this topic to kind of talk about in a missions uh, conference like this? Uh, Worksite wellness is rapidly becoming a focus of integrated public health and primary care in developed countries like the United States. In fact, it has become a major strategy that we use in my health department. I should back up a little bit and give them a little background. I'm the state health officer for North Dakota. I uh, was a missionary, a medical missionary in Central and East Africa for 12 years. have been in this position for about 12 years. So, and a lot of my work in Africa was done, uh, first of all, clinical work. I was a pediatric infectious disease person in Zaire. And then, from then on, eight years doing community engagement projects. And so one of the things that we have been interested in, in um, uh, public health in our state, has been this integration, utilizing work sites to change risky behaviors um, in our um, population. And I think one of the questions that I would have uh, is, has this been, I have not been, has seen this in, in, in missions, but has worksite wellness or should worksite wellness, does it have any place in missions outreach in the, United, in, in the world? So um, um, I would like to just be, uh, discuss, like I said, some of the basic tools from that, uh, that uh, concepts and tools that we use in worksite wellness. But one thing that I want to do before we get any further into the talk is um, uh, how does this fit in the strategy of health uh, in North Dakota? Um, I want to reach every person in my state and change their risky behaviors that will improve their health and wellness. And if I were able to get into every one of the 28,000 businesses in my state and have messages of wellness and health and deal with the health and wellness of those individuals, I would be reaching most of the adults in my state of North Dakota. And if I were at the same time be able to enter all the schools in North Dakota, which I look as specialized workplaces, and if I have consistent messages to all of the adults that are working in the workplaces in North Dakota and all of the schools that are dealing with most of the kids of school age in North Dakota, I will be impacting the family from two strategic directions with consistent messages. I would be pleased as state health officer if that was all they let me do in the state of North Dakota and I could do that effectively, I would be changing risky behaviors in families. That's one of the reasons why this is so important as a strategy for us. Now, question. Why would a workplace be interested in the health and wellness of employees? And the answer is relatively simple, and it's going to sound very non-spiritual and non-altruistic. Bingo. It has everything to do with productivity and money. Businesses exist to make money. They're not doing this just for the fun of putting things together and producing things. So they are interested in productivity and in profitability. And to tell you the truth, if worksite wellness actually impacts the productivity of a business, they will be interested. In fact, one of the other things, they will actually pay for that service to take place. Now I want to go through just a little bit of some studies. Um, this is an article that was from 2005 in the Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine. And it looked at the productivity of individuals with a variety of risk factors. There were a whole host of them. Smoking, obesity, inadequate exercise, inadequate diet, stress. It went on and on and on. And what they found was that, first of all, at a baseline, 
that you never get 100% from all of your employees. That's impossible. The maximum output that you can get in productivity from people is about 85%. And that's if they have zero to two of those risk factors that are on that big list. But the interesting thing is that productivity, as you can see here, dramatically decreases with the number of risk factors. In effect, the change from baseline goes to 83% decrease over baseline for individuals that have about five risk factors in their life. So one of the points I think that we can make regarding worksite wellness is that it's highly desirable to identify risk factors in, a, in employees of a workplace and to reduce those risk factors. And one of the questions, and, that, and I, I don't think it's a question, I think it's probably a consideration, is that this reduction in risk factors and increase of production in workplaces probably applies not only in developed countries like the United States, but probably around the world in the places where we may work in missions. Ah, let's get into a little bit more um, concepts on worksite wellness. Poor health impacts the bottom line of workplaces in many different ways. And in fact, this lists the four common ways that are oftentimes used by researchers when they're looking at, at uh, worksite wellness evaluation. First of all, there's the clinical care. That includes not only the outpatient clinics, but also hospital uh, costs. There are pharmaceutical costs, which are medications. There's absenteeism, which is where people obviously are not even at work because of illness or health issues. And there's a thing called presenteeism. Now, presenteeism is when you're there, but you're not really there. It's kind of like this. You know, when I've had a real difficult day at work, I go home and my wife, we, we always start. When we were in missions and even now, we always, she makes an incredible cappuccino. So we start off the day with our devotions and with my cup of cappuccino. And then I go to work. And if I've had a hard day, I'll come home in the afternoon and about the first thing I tell her when I walk through the door is, can I have another cappuccino, please? And she makes that cappuccino and we go out into a sunroom that we have. And we'll sit down and we'll be talking sometimes for 20 minutes. And every once in a while, Diana turns to me and she says, are you home yet? I may be physically there, but mentally and emotionally, I'm not there. That's presenteeism. And that happens in businesses as well. So we have those four things that oftentimes impact the business. This slide is really telling. Um, the main point of this study that was done in 2005 by Lepke demonstrated that 68% of the total fiscal impact on business per year is attributed to absenteeism and presenteeism, and only 32% of the cost to businesses is due to the medical costs, the clinics and the hospitals, and, and medications. Now, you know, if you talk with a lot of business people, they'll say, I just want to get a handle on that medical cost. You know, the clinics and hospitals, I just want to get a handle on those medications. Those are so very visible. But realize that is one of the lowest things on the list, 32%. We need to get a handle on all four of those things. But absenteeism and presenteeism, those things that are associated particularly with risk factors, if you look at presenteeism as the highest one on the list, is the thing we really need to get a handle on if we're going to impact that bottom line. Now, a question that you should be asking that I asked when I look at worksite wellness is, does it really work or is this just a theory? Can we really do something about it? The answer is yes, if it's done appropriately. This is a study that was done by Larry Chapman. He's done these several times. He does meta-analyses of multiple studies that have been done on work sites across the United States. And this one particular one in 2005, he did 56 different peer-reviewed articles on worksite wellness and did a meta-analysis on it. Now, a qualifying worksite wellness program to be put in the category of worksite wellness only had to have three of these things done in the worksite. Just take three of them. Now, as a worksite wellness community engagement specialist, which I've studied and I'm certified to do that, um, 
that's not very comprehensive to me. Just three of those things. You have a smoking prevention program, a nutrition program, and stress management would qualify you as a worksite wellness site. So, if you have three of those things, this is what he's found numerous times. Absenteeism decreases by 26%. Healthcare costs decrease by 26%. Workers' compensation costs decrease by 32%. And the benefit-cost ratio is for every dollar invested, there's a $5.81 return for the business. With relatively few interventions, worksite wellness, if done appropriately in those ways, will impact the bottom line of business. You can begin to see why businesses are interested in this. It does impact their bottom line. Now I want to go on to a company that you might recognize, Johnson & Johnson, baby powder company and all sorts of other things. And, are, and one of the questions that I would ask is, do we ever have big businesses uh, in the countries, in missions countries, that are targeted? Well, sure we do. We have a lot of them. International businesses are there. Or sometimes very large local businesses. I want to take a large business and I want to just demonstrate the uh, impact of a program on something like Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson created a wellness program back in 1978. Didn't do very much, so they reorganized it in 1995 and encouraged employees to accept responsibility for their health. Now, this sounds like community engagement to me. Owning your problems and solutions. And they did that by providing the the families and the the employees with resources and opportunities that would result in healthier lifestyles. What were they trying to focus on? These are the goals. They wanted to decrease the use of the medical system. They wanted to decrease absenteeism. They wanted to decrease injuries. They had a problem with morale. They wanted to increase that. And they wanted to decrease stress. Now, they did that by some key program features. They focused on prevention and education. Why? They wanted to get at those risk factors that were associated with that 62% of, uh, 68% of presenteeism and absenteeism. They also linked some health benefit links, they targeted health interventions, and they worked on some cost-effective healthcare delivery at their work sites. These are some of the things they did. They started off by gathering data. Uh, Data is really important. So um, they actually did a health risk assessment on all of their employees. Well, they offered it to all of their employees. There are 37,000 employees. 26,000 of them took that health risk assessment, which identified their personal risks as well as their interest in changing risky behaviors. Now, one of the things that people have um, oftentimes said about worksite wellness is that none of the employees are going to want to take health risk assessments. That's too invasive. They really don't want to give you that information. Well, even in the United States of Johnson & Johnson, 98% of the employees who took their HRAs, the health risk assessments, said, this is really worthwhile. And in fact, it was so positive that Johnson & Johnson repeats that health risk assessment every two years to give them additional data on how their worksite wellness program is progressing and to help them redesign and readjust things to make it even more effective. So what did they provide? Well, they, they get, had some uh, technology. They used some online action planning guides. They had access to call a nurse services and to health coaches. Now, why call a nurse services? Well, you know, the studies in the United States show that if you have an effective call a nurse line or counseling, that inappropriate emergency department visits will decrease by a minimum of 15% and a maximum of 70%. We are talking millions and millions of dollars for an organization like Johnson & Johnson. They also provided access to case management service for high-risk people. This is case management, teaching people to manage their own complex diseases when they have multiple chronic diseases. And they link some benefit incentives 
to uh, those individuals. And this is what they saw. Now, they were looking at all 37,000 of their employees. Remember, only 26,000 actually participated in doing the HRAs and all that sort of stuff. All of their employees, they saw a significant savings of $225 per employee. The only thing that seemed to increase was a $10.87 increase in ER visits. But generally, across the board, there was a $225 savings per employee per year. And this one is the public health slide. All of the health, risk, health risks that they were trying to impact improved. Cholesterol levels decreased. Fiber diet increased. Exercise increased. Smoking decreased. Blood pressure control improved. Seat belt use increased. And drinking and driving decreased. All of the risk factors that they wanted to deal with improved. So what did that mean for Johnson & Johnson? $8.5 million savings per year when they employed worksite wellness. High-risk patients that receive that case management, these are people that have multiple chronic diseases, they saved an additional $890,000 or $390 per employee that needed case management per year. The major point I hope I've convinced you of, and we could go on and on and talk about this, but worksite wellness really works. It really impacts the bottom line. And I have no reason to expect that this can't happen in other areas of the world. And one of the questions I would say is, is this and should this be a valuable tool in missions? Now we're going to move to just a couple of other concepts. And this is going to start making more sense to Terry Dalrymple right now as we begin to move into community engagement. <laughs> there are four basic attributes of successful programs to change risky behaviors. And this is based on a study, it was an editorial actually, that was released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in 2002. And what they were looking at was HIV AIDS um, incidence rates in Africa. And they noticed there were parts of Uganda, parts of the Zambia, and parts of Sierra Leone where the HIV AIDS rates were not increasing or in some places even decreasing. And the question was, what was it about those areas of, of Sub-Saharan Africa that was different than the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa, where during that period of time we were seeing 20% increases in all the parameters across the rest of, the, of that area. And they found four things that you can take to the bank. One of them is high-level leadership support. The second thing, you have to use best practices or promising practices. The third thing, you have to have adequate resources. And the fourth thing, you need to engage the community. Now let's talk about leadership just a little bit. What are we talking about here? If you're doing a national program, what they found is you better have the president or the president, president's wife involved. And they better be supportive. If you're going to do a state program here in the United States, you'd better have the governor involved. If you're going to do a, a program that's involving a target area of a, um, a city, you'd better have the mayor involved. If you're going to do a program that is involving, let's say, a business, you'd better have the CEO involved. Without leadership support, the program will die. So that's one of the things that they mentioned. The use of best or promising practices, that, I mean, that just makes sense. If you try to implement something that hasn't been proven or doesn't work, it isn't going to work. We have a lot of those programs out there where it thinks, we think it would work, but we're not sure, and we spend a lot of resource on it, and then we find out that it was really a bad idea to begin with. Adequate resources. You have to put adequate resources of time, people, and funding into things. And community engagement. Community engagement is really important. We're going to spend some time talking about those concepts. It is an additional set of tools that we recently have added to public health which I think is an exciting set of tools. 
And one of those is worksite wellness. One way, a specialized way of community engagement is worksite wellness and school wellness. Uh, let's talk about engagement a little bit. The term community engagement is often misused. In fact, um, much of the work that I see that's done using this term community engagement is truly community coercion. Well, let me explain how that works. Community coercion is like this, and I hope a lot of us are not going to feel guilty of this, but I do. It's like um, highly trained uh, public health individuals or scientists who actually are able to look at data and figure out, you know, what the main diseases are in a certain target area. And we know enough about how to deal with that that we can go ahead and develop some and design some programs to make those interventions. And then we go off and we apply for grants by various organizations, or we go and raise money in our missions agencies to, to find money to support those kinds of plans to deal with that problem in those target areas. And after we get all of that in place, we go to the community and we try to sell the program to them. Folks, that's not community engagement. You'll find many books that will talk about that as community engagement. That's community coercion. Coercion, Webster defines as the use of physical or moral force to compel or act to assent. Community coercion, in my experience, over 30 years, rarely, if ever, results in community ownership. True community engagement, if I were going to define it, it's facilitating groups of people or communities to own their problems and solutions. The Centers for Disease Control in their book, and it would be a good book for you to read, is The Principles of Community Engagement, second edition. It was published in 2011. And they, they uh, uh, define community engagement this way. Engaging a community is ultimately about facilitating community-driven action. I think they really hit the nail on the head there. And we need to always think, as we approach communities, are we coercing them or are we, are we truly engaging them? Another concept to kind of define this a little further is true community engagement is facilitation of a process of problem solving and not a project. It's doing things with people and not doing things to people. In other words, the community must own the process from the very beginning. They've got to be engaged at the very beginning. In fact, it's the community that's going to make a decision if there's even going to be a community engagement process at all. It's not us as external people to that community. They have to be in charge. They have to be encouraged. They have to be empowered. They have to be facilitated and make that choice on their own. And to tell you the truth, community engagement doesn't fit very well with grants. It doesn't fit very well with many of our programs that we even design in missions because we have short time frames to do things. We don't have time to wait for the community to move at its own pace. I mean, I think of the grants that CDC gives me, you know, in my health department, millions and millions of dollars a year. We've got to get something out the door in the next six months. If I'm trying to work with the community, I don't have time to talk with them and let them move at their pace. We've got to get it done. So my folks just impose this on the community. We call it community engagement. It has nothing to do with community engagement. How many of us in missions have done that? We have a time frame. I've got a newsletter to send out. I've got to get some results. I don't have time to wait for that community to do anything. We've got to be real careful in what we're doing. We're facilitating a process and not a project. This next concept, I think... Um, uh, something, this gets down to some research that uh, I've been actually done uh, in a fellowship over several years. Um, 
Individuals are generally members of multiple communities and not one. Um, And I need to define community here. As a public health person, I would generally define community in geopolitical terms, uh, which means that I'll take a part of my state of North Dakota and I'll draw a little bit of a box around it and say that's the target community that I'm going to aim at. Or in Bismarck, our capital city, I'm going to take the northeast section of the town and I'm going to divide that up and I'm going to just call that a community. We public health people do geopolitical communities. As a community engagement person, the definition of community that I would use that means something to me is people who know each other by first name which usually limits you anthropologically to about 1,000 to 1,500 people max. And not only do they know each other by first name, but they have a sense of shared responsibility for each other. Whenever I found you have that kind of mix in a group of people, they're moving close to that definition of community, and I can begin to use those community engagement concepts and principles to engage them. So I wanted to define that a little bit of what I mean there. One of the things that I found as I've looked at the various communities around the world is that you can probably divide them into five groups that we have listed here. First of all, we have rural communities. How big? Uh, 1,000 to 1,500 people. I was raised by one of those in North Dakota, a little place called Garrison, 1,200 people. I was raised by that community. If I was on the north side of town and I fell down and cut my knee as a little kid, someone would take me in. They'd bandage it up. They'd call my mom. She'd know everything that happened before I got home. Same thing is true if I did something wrong. Boy, did that get through that town. And my mom and dad were waiting to correct me when I got home. But folks, I was raised by that community. When I walk into some of the old folks' homes in Bismarck and around the state, and I see some of those folks from Garrison. That's my family. They raised me. That's what community does. That's why rural communities around the world act like that. They're very, very tight and and close. Schools. Schools are uh, kind of an interesting workplace, and I'm going to tell you that schools, from in the experience that I've had, are very complex communities. They're not one community. They're various sub-communities. You have the staff. You have the students that are oftentimes stratified based on age and or homeroom and or other organizations in school. They are very complex communities to deal with. You're not dealing with just one when you're dealing with school. Faith-based organizations. Oh, man, that's what Che's all about. Faith-based organizations that have this belief in the supernatural that impacts those, those, those uh, values and, and belief systems that drive behaviors. What an incredibly powerful tool faith-based organizations are. Work sites. For what we're talking about here. Very cohesive communities in many situations. And then we have another group called other organizations. It would be things like, let me give you some examples, Qantas. Optimus Club, Rotary, Knights of Columbus. Um, The internet or virtual communities, I'm going to throw that one out there. I kind of struggle with that at my age. You know, is that a real community that acts like a community? I don't know the answer to that. That's something that many of you younger folks here are going to have to deal with as I retire and all of us community engagement folks retire And can we use some of these tools in the virtual community out there with a different generation to change their lives? I don't know the answers to that, but it's something that needs research. The the only other thing that I want to mention here is that there are different techniques that we use when we're doing community engagement across these five spokes. Just a couple of examples of that. With schools... You'd better understand the developmental differences between kids at various ages. Because that's going to be, and and their ability to abstract, that's going to change the way you're going to message and way you're going to deal with kids in a community environment. We need to know that. With faith-based organizations, 
you really need to understand and believe that tapping in to the belief in the supernatural and how important that is and valuable that is and powerful that is in changing those behaviors that you're trying to change. When we get down to the workplace, we've got to reorient our minds that businesses have to see an impact on the bottom line. They may not be as altruistic as you are when you're approaching them. We are, especially as missionaries. You know, We do things because it's the right thing to do. Businesses aren't going to do that. They'll do it if it impacts their bottom line. The last thing I want to mention here before we move on is community engagement. Remember that I'd mentioned that individuals are members of multiple communities? If you think about that, just think about your situation. You might be a member of a faith-based group. You might also be involved in a workplace. You may be involved in the school. Even as an adult, you might be involved in PTA. You may be involved in a rural town. You may be involved in other organizations. You're probably involved in multiples of these folks in various combinations. And one of the things that I found is that it really makes sense when you're doing community engagement and targeting an area is targeting all of the communities in a target area that are going to influence the individuals you're trying to hit. If you try to silo and do just worksite wellness, just faith-based, just schools, just the rural communities, you might not have consistent messages that are impacting the individual from other angles. And those messages, communities are meant and ever since the beginning of humankind. That's how we developed our beliefs. That's how we've developed our values. And that's how we eventually, all of those things emerge as our behaviors because those communities influenced us and raised us. And they have incredible opportunities. Every one of those that's a true community influences your deep beliefs and your values. So we always look at a very broad, targeted way of looking at all of the communities in a target area to increase our opportunity to change behavioral thresholds. Uh, this one I think all of us really firmly believe. Health and wellness is much more than absence of disease. You know, as a physician, boy, when I walked out of medical school, I thought it was all about disease. <laughs> you know, if I could just get rid of all the diseases, everybody would be much better. Well, you know, part of that is true, but I think all of us realize that it's really composed of all these things. I mean, World Health Organization doesn't put spiritual in there, but we know that that's important. It is a combination of that physical, social, economic, emotional, and spiritual components. We need to deal with all of that in every one of those community engagement projects, in all of those folks, we need to deal with those. Now, having done that, I want to just divert back to worksite wellness here for a while. All employees, when you think about a worksite, will fall into four categories of risk. First of all, that's the right-hand side of the column. Those that have no risk factors, that's great. We want to keep them there. People that have risk factors but no disease, we want to get rid of their risk factors. People who have chronic disease but don't have any complications yet. And then the fourth one is those that have chronic disease and or major complications. Now, so what we want to do on the very first two of those, those that have no risky behaviors or those that have risky behaviors but no disease, we really want to get rid of those risk factors. Now, where does the set of tools come to deal with risk factors? That's public health. That is our primary mission. It's, it's not the primary mission of me as a clinician. When I'm trained as a clinician, if I think about all the time that I spend or our PAs and nurse practitioners, we spend almost all of our time learning how to diagnose and treat disease, don't we? What do public health people do? Their primary mission is getting rid of those risk factors and population-based interventions to decrease the onset of disease. That's the public health part of comprehensive worksite wellness, and that's why it's so important to have it there, and that's what Larry Chapman talked about. 
And actually, if you think about it, what is the greatest impact on the bottom line of businesses? Presenteeism, absenteeism. And the productivity, remember the productivity when we talked about risk factors, you get up to five and you have an 83% decrease over their, their productivity baseline. If you really want to impact a business and you're only going to do one thing and you're not going to deal with the other stuff, I would suggest you go after the public health part of it, the risk factor reductions. But anyhow, we really need to deal with all of it. The reason I'm going to say that is that when I do a, a comprehensive worksite wellness consultation, and I had one not too long ago, it was a couple of years ago, with a, a business out in the western part of North Dakota. And I was sitting with the CEO, and he bought the idea that he needed to get rid of the risk factors. But then he also said, but you know what's really impacting my bottom line right now is I have some diabetics that are so out of control, and I don't know what to do with them, and they are just, just killing our our, our premiums for our self-insurance. So I couldn't just deal with just those risk factors. I needed to give them some ideas on how to deal with the management of these people that had chronic disease. So that brings us down to the bottom part here. So you have people that have chronic disease with few complications, people that have chronic diseases with many complications. The things that we can do there are things that are already established. There's this thing called chronic disease management which actually teaches people to manage their own disease, protocol-driven diseases. I've got a clinic that does that with kids with asthma. Native American kids are doing great when you get them on the protocols. Same thing is true with case management. That once you have very complex cases, people that have multiple chronic diseases and are complications, they need to have case management like a nurse or a nurse practitioner who actually helps people sort through all of that and come up with appropriate and encourage them to uh, deal with their disease. So it's clinic-level things. And we have a whole lot of other things that you can do to try to augment the business. You can provide health counseling. You can provide that call-a-nurse thing that we talked about. You can provide some on-site clinics. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, right now, in my health department, if a person has a blood pressure problem and they've got to go and get their blood pressure checked, they leave in the morning. They sit in the clinic for several hours. They then get their blood pressure checked. And if they're going to talk with the doc afterward, that takes a little bit more time. I sometimes don't see them for the rest of the day. Now, as, a, as an employer, that doesn't help my bottom line. They're gone. And, you know, if I had an on-site clinic with a mid-level person, which actually works better than doctors because we're way too expensive, <laughs> If I had somebody there just doing blood pressure checks or doing, for diabetics, uh, hemoglobin A1C draws, I can get them back to work in a matter of minutes. So I think you can see on-site clinics work. And then the last one I'm going to throw out is uh, worksite wellness chaplains. Now this one surprised me a little bit, and I'm going to give a little bit of a history. North Dakota is in the midst of an incredible oil boom. I mean like big time. We have, we have the greatest immigration of individuals into the state of North Dakota since the Great Depression. It's huge. I mean, we have towns that are bursting at the seams in the West where they used to have only a few thousand people and now have 30,000 to 40,000. It's huge. And with that population coming into the state, we are seeing some problems. And one of the problems is entry-level mental health problems. These workers are coming in, and it's interesting, as we've kind of worked with that situation, we were saying, well, where are they seeking their, their mental health needs or their domestic needs? They're going to pastors. Even if they don't have any faith background, they end up going to the local pastors out in the rural areas in North Dakota, and those pastors are overwhelmed. So from all of that, we had a request by various businesses who also realized that this is impacting their bottom line and their people aren't performing well. They're doing presenteeism because they're not there because of their concerns about their domestic issues and their mental health entry-level issues. And they says, can we have military chaplaincy training for our work sites and our communities? So we actually were able to use state dollars to provide that. And that was accepted so well that we've now had a second, and we're getting a third one done in other parts of western North Dakota. 
But the point being is that work sites have known this for a while. I didn't realize that. But some large work sites have two, three, or four work site chaplains that deal with basic spiritual and mental health and domestic needs in their workplaces because it really improves their bottom line. Now, I hope one of the things that you're going through your head is, boy, doesn't this sound like an opportunity for missions? I mean, man alive, isn't this what we're about? Couldn't we get into this thing? I mean, how many people work in the countries that we're trying to reach? How many businesses are there? This is a mission field. And have our evangelical missions tried to deal with businesses? It's just a question to throw out. So that uh, a chaplaincy model, I think I've talked about some of the things. These people are trained as, as military chaplains. I know Dave, you know that very well <laughs> as a colonel in the National Guard. Um, these people will assist people no matter what their religious background is, serving all. Um, they can provide, like we said, um, very cost-effective basic mental and spiritual health needs. Large businesses can usually afford to have their own or multiples. Small businesses is a challenge. But this is, maybe they can aggregate their needs for these worksite wellness chaplains and have one of them for a target area for small businesses. These are things that you guys need to figure out on missions field. How is it going to work? And is it a strategy for missions? Um, I'm not going to go through all of this. This is just what basic chaplaincy training kind of consists of, just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that military chaplains are trained trained in. Now, just the last couple of slides is um, there are several uh, seven steps to successful worksite wellness programs that have been identified by the Wellness Council of America, and they include. Some of them are going to just make sense from what we've already talked about. Get management support. Um, And we've talked about how important it is to have leadership, not only at the CEO level, but you have to have middle-level management support, too, or they're going to undermine even the CEO and the program. The second thing is you create a team. Now, this comes back to kind of community engagement principles. I mean, what do we do in most communities? We have a committee. That's exactly what you do in worksite wellness. You have a committee, and you really need to have representation of not only the jocks in the, in, the, in the work site that are running all the time. You really need to have everybody. If you've got smokers, you really want to get them there. If you have people that are overweight, you want to get them there. They've got to participate in that committee. You're not just looking for the people that are already in the choir. You want to have a broad representation of the needs of that business. You need to collect data. And I'm just going to throw out some things that you really would like to have some handled on. There are some what we call upper-level management interest surveys. I really want to know, as a facilitator of worksite wellness, what the the upper-level and middle-level management think about a worksite wellness program. I need to know that because I don't even know if I'm going to want to engage if they're not interested. The second thing, I want to know about employee interest surveys. Are they interested in what kinds of risk factors are they interested in dealing with? Because it helps me focus. And then we need to also have an operating plan. We need to choose interventions. Boy, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about that. Interventions in worksite wellness are very, very structured. It's not just shooting from the hip. We have three different buckets of interventions that we have. One of them are awareness campaigns. Awareness campaigns are meant to be 100% penetration of the business. And what you're trying to do there is just to get people that have no interest in wellness to at least think about it. Okay? Um, They're not going to participate yet. They just want them to think about it. And then you move them to the middle bucket, which are education motivation things. What those are are just... You're just going to do one thing. You have to do something, but you only have to do it once. It might be going to the Y. You're not going to swim, but you're going to watch someone else swim once. Or you might go on a walk once. 
But you're not committing yourself to anything else but just one time. But the whole point of education motivation is to get people interested in moving into the true interventions. The true interventions are where they're doing regular behaviors regularly. And to tell you the truth, that's where the return on investment for the business is. So you have to have a combination. When we train worksite wellness people, they're trained to develop the right kind of balance between all of those kinds of tools that you have to move every person in the business from where they're at over to the right-hand side of the chart. That is the whole goal. So it's not just shooting from the hip. There is a plan to do that. And it takes pretty intense training uh, to do that. And then um, creating a supportive environment. You really need to have the right policies in place. Policies are meant to encourage healthy behaviors. And then the last is to evaluate. This just goes through some of the elements of evaluation, the levels of participation, satisfaction surveys that we do, improvements in knowledge, attitude, behaviors. We do biometrics also, depending on what we're aiming at. The risk factors, are they improving? What is the physical environment? What is the corporate culture? Is it improving? Is productivity improving? And return on investment. And this is where most of the CEOs are going to spend their time on those last ones. That's what they want to see. Those are some of the main things that we, that we evaluate. So, in summary... Businesses want programs that improve their bottom line. Successful businesses will improve the economic well-being of individuals. And once they do that, it's going to impact their families and their communities. And one of the things that we've seen is that when you do comprehensive work, remember we have that two-pronged approach that I would suggest that probably is where I'd start schools and work sites. But, you know, if I can get the dad and the mom in a business who are the head of a home, if I can change them and move towards healthy behaviors, you know, they have an incredible influence on their children and the rest of their family. And as a public health person, that's where I want to go. I need to get to that family any way I can and improve the health and wellness so that they can live a much more productive and quality life. That's where we want to go. Um, I think I've also shared with you that there are some real potentials here in not only dealing with some of the physical aspects of wellness, but beginning to think about those worksite chaplains and the ability to reach in and deal with the spiritual needs of people, which we know is going to impact the bottom line, not only of the business, but of these people spiritually for eternity. What an incredible opportunity we have if we will take it if we feel that that's part of the mission as we move forward one of the other things that I just want to kind of share as I'm kind of closing here is that public health is one of those areas like medicine that has some incredible potential to enter the closed areas of the world Everybody that I've ever interacted with as state health officer when we've been in Taiwan and when we've been in Ghana and we've been in other places, Turkmenistan, which is a totally closed country, are always interested in improving the wellness and health of their people. And if we're wise about how we interact with people, we can actually penetrate the ends of the earth with the gospel. And that's what it's all about. That's what I wanted to share with you, is what is the role of worksite wellness in missions? Should it be a part of our outreach to this world? So once again, thank you. I know it's been a long day for you. I was wondering if you had any questions or comments uh, about, about this concept of worksite wellness in missions. Specifically for the emotional and mental and spiritual well-being. 
No, I, I am not. Uh, the closest that we've gotten is Alice and I have been working in Ghana, and we have just gotten down to about the last training program, the next training program that I hope we're going to be able to do sometime soon through the National Guard Connection Program that we have with Ghana is a worksite wellness training program. That will be the first one that we'll have ever done outside the United States. And this, I, I'm going to be honest with you, the worksite wellness training that we do, it's kind of like a full TOT. It's a full-blown TOT. It's going to challenge your mind. If you've ever gone through a CHE TOT, when you're going through this, and it sounds awful non-spiritual because you're going to have to reorient your mind to the way that CEO is going to be oriented, it's really tough for us as missionaries to do that because we want to stay in that spiritual area. And what we're trying to do is say, we've got to figure out how these people think, and we need to be as, as wise as serpents and gentles as, as doves, but we need to reach these people for Christ. And I think God has some plans to do that, but it kind of takes a reorientation of our mind. But it's an intensive, intensive week-long training to do comprehensive worksite wellness trainer of trainers, which is taught in the LEPSA method. Alice, do you have anything else to say about that? I don't know whether you knew of any other programs out there that uh, um, are, are moving in worksite wellness. I am not aware of any missions. I, I'd be interested. Any missions agencies that are represented here that are doing anything in worksite wellness? I think it would take a, a directed effort and strategic plan to move forward with that. But once again, I just want to leave you with, there are an awful lot of businesses around the world. Every one of them exists to be productive. And, and it's not a bad thing. If you think about, we do microeconomics in chain. Why? Because we want to make sure that families have enough economic income to be healthy, to send their kids to school. It's not a bad thing for the business to be profitable. Yeah? One question comes to my mind is, I mean, I, I really appreciate what you have to say because I see it as, a, as an idea of thought. You just said, well, where might this go? We plan it, germinate, see where it goes. But I would like to know, based on your experience here in the United States, mm -hmm. you have been involved in it, mm -hmm. have you started down this path and you suddenly the CEO says, I don't like it. It's too costly. How do, you, how do you handle that situation at that yeah. point? Generally, actually, we've seen the exact opposite. We have several pilots in North Dakota, all the way from big, big companies to small companies. And actually, there are a lot of worksite wellness programs around the United States. And people doing them as actually businesses to help facilitate them. Whenever you do that, I think one of the things that I might answer, it, the, the biggest problem that I've seen with individuals who... Uh, when we counsel them, they'll say, I've done worksite wellness and it didn't work, which I do here. When I probe that a little bit, I find that they spent all of their energies in awareness campaigns and nothing in education motivation and nothing in true interventions that get to the return on investment. That is the big thing. And it's re the reason for that being is that the CEO says, oh, if I just get information out there and send it out with all their paycheck stuffers, I'm just going to send out all that information. They're going to read it and they're going to change. And it's real cheap for me to do. I don't have to get people involved in this regular activity thing. And they expect there's going to be ROI. You've got to be upfront with them to say, if you don't invest enough in this for your employees, you're getting nothing back. And so we feel out the... The CEO, that CEO has got to be committed to it. And they've got to be committed to evaluation too, or I'm not going to waste my time. I've got too much else to do. They need to know that right up front. It's, it's not like I'm looking for a job. We've got plenty to do. I only want to help the ones that, want to, that are ready to go. I worked at actually a work site clinic for Toyota in Georgetown, Kentucky. And um, I've just been a PTA for three years now, but my, uh, for my first year... I actually worked there, and I was a machinist for 30 years. So it was a perfect fit for me. Not only did I get to go in and do the PTA, but they used me in ergonomic studies. Uh, the doctor's clinic, I mean, on-site there, they actually have a doctor that's on-site. <laughs> they have uh, nurse practitioners that are on-site. They have nurses for 
like certain areas so that that nurse knows that group of people. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that nurse is a case study mm-hmm. for those people. So, I mean, and the neat thing with us was if something happened out on the assembly line, they also had safety people there so that they could immediately get them to the clinic. If they needed to come to physical therapy, they were with us within usually 30 minutes. So one of the things we've seen was strains, um, injuries that could have turned into something really astronomical. Mm-hmm. We were stopping them before yeah. it ever got that. Not only that, but if we've seen repeat injuries in certain areas, mm-hmm. we could also do uh, the studies for mm-hmm. those lines and for the, and they would. They'd ask us to come in and talk to about, you know, what were we seeing as far as the, a certain group of clients mm-hmm. so that we did a lot of, not only acknowledgement for the people keeping them safe, but improvement in the way that they processed as well so that there would be a less risk of injury. And, I mean, it was really, it, it worked. And the big thing about that was even in the little bit of time I was there, uh, I know that overall they had told me there weren't comp cases that went down like 72%. Absolutely. It's, it's incredible. I, I can't underline more that it, when you do it comprehensively and well across the board, you will see major, major, major improvements in the health and wellness of the people in a business, and their bottom line will definitely be impacted. It's not even questionable. It's, the, the data is so, so clear. How much are you seeing of, um, companies actually paying their employees to be involved in Oh, yeah. They, they do. In fact, you know, Johnson & Johnson gave $500 incentive for people to get started. They, they At Toy Holder, they don't give you a choice. If you get hurt there, you have to go to their clinic first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, but one of the good things, too, is working there, there were two times that I've seen people that I knew right off the bat I called my PTN, and they were actually able to get them right to the hospital because they had actually ripped in So the other thing about it is they didn't have to wait the months to find out that happened. Because a lot of times some of the stuff, the more drastic injuries, mm-hmm. I mean, they kind of went really mm-hmm. quick so yeah. that it wasn't a big time off like what you were talking about yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, once again, the comprehensive part is public health dealing with risky behaviors together with clinical, base, the clinical things that are going to meet the needs of that business all together. This is integration of public health and primary care. I'm thinking about small business. Mm -hmm. Are there uh, organizations, companies that do worksite wellness? Mm -hmm. They put together, Mm -hmm. that they work with small businesses to make it affordable for them. Right. Because inside these systems, I can Mm -hmm. see how they can make it happen. Sure sure they can. What about the little guy out there? And could that be a place where a missionary might really Sure. In the business world, sure. that takes him into sure, absolutely. Let me, yeah, let me, let me talk about that because we actually have done some research in this uh, in North Dakota. Um, we um, uh, the, we have twenty eight thousand businesses in North Dakota. The average size of the business is thirteen people. Now, to be honest with you, almost all of the research that's been done in the world on worksite wellness is in businesses over fifty. There is a vacuum of knowledge for these small businesses. Now, we've done some research in looking at, uh, once again, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about it. There are two pots of money that you use when you're talking about what it's going to cost to a business. There are fixed costs, which you're going to pay, whether you're a small business or a big business, to get things started. Okay? It's just fixed. It's just to start a worksite wellness program. And then you have variable costs, which are based on cost per employee. So it's the number of employees that you have. The ones that get the small business are the fixed costs. We did a study in North Dakota, like I said, that looked at if you have 500 employees in your business, the cost to get one started is about $40 a person. If you have a business of under 10, it costs you about $1,600 a person to get your worksite wellness program started. 
That sometimes is prohibitive. So, I mean, where are we going with this? I mean, you can't do much about the fixed costs are there. I mean, you can try to decrease them a little bit, but it's going to take something to get it there. But the thing that I think is the answer to this, where we're kind of going in North Dakota, is aggregating the costs in the target area for a number of businesses. Why can't you do that? And, and Because when you think about it, it is doable. But this is the kind of research. Now, this gets back to our academic versus and practical people working together. We really need to figure this one out. We need to figure this one out in missions. How do we make it happen? I think the idea is there. I think you're seeing the potential. Uh, we need to figure out how to make this happen. And I don't have the answer on all the research. I'm just telling you where we're at. We're just back here trying to... We got the data that says it costs an awful lot for a small business, and we're, we've got some ideas that we need to aggregate that, and we're trying to figure that out now in some of the businesses that we're targeting. So yep. where does a mission agency connect to get the worksite wellness to Oh, well, they can just connect with us. I mean, I, through Terry and through us. I mean, we, we're developing relationships between community health evangelism as well as with our stuff that we do in from Global Health Outreach, we'd be happy to provide that kind of training and discussions for individuals who are interested in doing it. Any other thoughts? Well, I hope this has been helpful. I uh, just wanted to share a little bit about worksite wellness and potential use in missions. Thank you.